0: It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Christine Ahn. Christine is the founder and the international coordinator of Women Cross DMZ, and we'll talk about that. Uh, This is a group of women mobilizing for peace in Korea. Christine Ahn is a writer and an organizer working for peace and justice and demilitarization of our world. Christine Ahn, welcome to Talk Nation Radio.
1: Thank you, David.
0: How are you liking the Olympics so far?
1: Oh, it's so moving.
0: The the opening ceremony.
1: That, yeah, I think it just uh, deeply touched not just the Korean people, but I think the people of the world.
0: Were, were you surprised by the extent of the measures that they went to, to to unify the two Koreas?
1: I mean, I you know, I had actually tweeted days before that you just, I don't think, you know, people, there were so many pundits that were kind of, you know, the way I put it, throwing shade on, you know, the two Koreas and, you know, this whole rhetoric around Pyongyang's charm offensive and, you know, to really just try to denigrate this incredibly magnanimous and bold act by the two Koreas. Um, And so I said, you know, don't underestimate the power of um, seeing two Koreas marched together under a one-Korea flag. And I think that's exactly what happened, I think. Um, just especially those that understand the tragic modern history of Korea um, and to know how Korea was divided, to know the enormous destruction and death of the caused by the Korean War, and to know that you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Korean families still remain separated because of the most militarized border in the world, Uh, to see that kind of um, putting aside of enmity and hostility, to recognize that they need to come together to avert uh, a disastrous nuclear war that is being threatened, not, you know, by the United States, uh, I think that was, uh, it was, it was extraordinary. And I, um, I mean, you know, all aspects of it, from the beautiful display um, to the ending of uh, the ceremony with, you know, the song Imagine with, you know, the shapes of, of, of a dove. I mean, you know, I just think the South Korea and Moon Jae-in, they just, They invested so much to um, really reflect, I think, the deep power and sentiment of the Korean people for, for unity
0: i I doubt that an Olympics in the United States would permit such references to peace and doves and imagined by john lennon uh it was <laughs> it, i mean it was beyond what i what I had hoped for um and 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 yet you saw this beautiful opening ceremony, and everyone standing and cheering for the two teams coming in as one with one korean flag uh but there were two people. Uh, sitting, uh, not standing, not cheering, just uh, sitting on their butts and glaring around uh, to the embarrassment, uh, I would hope, of of everyone in the United States, although I don't think the NBC commentators um, mentioned Mike Pence and his wife.
1: Right, and I think also Shinzo Abe did not applaud.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't notice him. I don't. Maybe the camera didn't shot didn't include him that I saw. But yeah,
1: yeah. and so I think that uh, that is really interesting, um, disturbing, and a true affront to Korean people. Um, you know, as I noted, you know, uh, you know, the um, the modern history of Korea really starts with the collusion between the U.S. and Japan that led to the colonial occupation of Korea. So in 1905, um, the war secretary, William Taft, signed with uh, the Count um, Katsuda, the Taft-Katsuda secret agreement, where basically both governments agreed to look the other way as the U.S. colonized both Hawaii and Japan, I mean, Hawaii and the Philippines, while Japan invaded Korea. And so um, just seeing that the two leaders, uh, Abe and Mike Pence, um, not stand literally for Korean unity and knowing this kind of deep and dark history um, is truly uh, an affront to Korean people. And, you know, I just, I, I noted, like, how ironic is it that the two leaders of the governments that have the, the largest and heaviest military footprint on Korean soil be the ones to be um, sowing bitterness and discord at this incredibly hopeful and moving ceremony. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite telling and, um, and so important, um, especially for the U.S. population to know this. Um, Because we are in this kind of historic moment, and I think what happens in the coming weeks and months will very much determine whether there will be war or peace on the Korean Peninsula.
0: The the NBC uh, talking head, uh, I don't know the guy's name, uh, kept referring to the threat from across the border and the the service of the U.S. troops in South Korea, and and even referred to Japan as a great model and inspiration for every single person in Korea. And NBC later had to apologize for that. What uh, I mean, what? Do you think U.S. viewers who watch the, this on television, do you think they understood what the rest of the world was seeing?
1: I don't know, because I think that there is a grave distortion that the Korean War is just a war between North and South Korea, yeah. and that it has nothing to do with the U.S., which is incredible to me that uh, we are you know, in this situation where the U.S., uh, destroyed 80% of North Korean cities through its air bombing campaign. And the U.S. is the one that divided the Korean peninsula. (laughs) And, you know, it's the U.S. that still has 30,000 troops in South Korea and regularly conducts these uh, joint war drills that is uh, provoking North Korea that includes such things as decapitation strikes. It is actually threatening North Korea, which is why North Korea has said that they have pursued a nuclear deterrent. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's complicated because on the one hand, it's like, I think, you know, American people were so moved by this Korean unity, but have no idea what their own government is doing to create uh, discord on the Korean Peninsula.
0: But I can imagine viewers in the headquarters of Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman throwing stuff at the television. I mean, they don't want, they have to have the appearance of Korean disunity for the war to be between South and North Korea. Uh, and, and and I think it's, you know, the, the U.S. understanding is even worse than that because... Uh, the U.S. public is now convinced that North Korea is a threat to the United States, not not just, you know, uh, one partner in a civil war far away, but that the, the big danger to the United States, the reason for more U.S. military spending, is the threat from North Korea.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was just speaking in Albany last night, and I... You know, I I rolled out a bunch of statistics and a bunch of quotes like uh, the former admiral of the U.S. Pacific Command, you know, which is the command that is uh, in charge of overseeing, you know, uh, the U.S. armed and, you know, naval air forces in the Asia-Pacific region, based in Hawaii. And, you know, he has said that North Korea is not a threat. And, you know... They are a threat because we make them a threat, but they are not a threat. And we have given the North Koreans far too much credit. And even um, when I went to an event in Hawaii, that's where I'm based, um, you know, somebody cited the U.S. Pacific Command saying there's a 0.01% chance that North Korea would launch a missile at the United States because it would be suicide for them. And so even though I... I trot out these facts and these statistics. You know, a woman still stood up and she said, I hear you, but the images that I get about Kim Jong-un and the threat to uh, American security by the North Korean government still terrifies me. And I said, well, I understand that because there is no communication between the U.S. and North Korea. And um, given what we saw with what happened in Hawaii with this false alarm about a so-called North Korean missile coming towards Hawaii, that there is so much room for human error that could lead to uh, a devastating nuclear war. So I understand that, but somehow we have to drill down into the minds of the American people that um, the threat is really the um, recklessness, of the Trump administration. It is the unpredictability of this administration and that they could use, or, you know, just as, uh, the history of, of, of whether it's the Bay of Pigs or, you know, various, um, you know, actions that they have done to provoke, um, other countries, you know, secretly or not secretly, um, you know, that's what worries me, I guess, is, you know, as the Mueller investigation encircles the Trump administration, that they could use a, uh, some kind of military skirmish to distract the American people um, and, you know, kind of project this, uh, we're strong and uh, we're strong in national defense and, you know, just like carry out this narrative that has um, worked in the past to uh you know um, just distract and confuse the American people. So uh, that's my fear to be honest with you. it's not at all that North Korea would do that I don't I don't think that they uh, would do that. I agree with the military the. US military that that would just be an impossible scenario but I do worry about um, what our military or what our what the Trump administration is capable of doing. Yeah. Some kind of malfeasance.
0: Yeah. <laughs> beyond, I mean, beyond North Korea uh, sending a missile into the United States, which I don't know if it's even capable of, and as you say, it would be suicidal. It would only do it in retaliation uh, against the United States. Uh, what about the people who email me all the time and say that I need to support war? Or start learning the North Korean language. I'm not sure there even is such a language, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But this—I mean, the people, actual human beings in the United States, walking and breathing, believe that that North Korea is going to come here and occupy the United States and take it over. What's what's the what's the percentage chance on that one?
1: I mean, zero percent chance. I mean, North Korea has been look. It's an authoritarian regime, and I'm not trying to justify the kind of Of brutal humanitarian or human rights abuses that the government imposes on its people. But there is a historical explanation for why that country is as paranoid as it is. And it has a lot to do with the fact that there has never been a formal end to the state of war on the Korean Peninsula, it has everything to do with um, the kind of brutal, devastating air bombing campaign that they endured during the Korean War, where one in three North Koreans were killed. Where you know, foreign journalists that went um, to North Korea to say that the only it felt like it was like walking on the moon. The only thing standing were um, chimneys; otherwise, it was uh, you know piles of ashes. Throughout, I mean, when I traveled to North Korea and I go to Pyongyang, which is a modern industrial city, um, and, you know, the our minders are saying, oh, and there's that so-and-so building, and, you know, it's a restaurant, and I, you know, it's a beautiful Korean restaurant and it's a traditional Korean building, but I, I wondered why do they keep pointing that out, and that's because that was the only building that was remaining from the Korean War, and so... Um, if we could understand that experience of the North Korean people and how uh, farmers had to build shelters, how they had to farm at nighttime so that they wouldn't be subjected to um, just like indiscriminate bombing, that that kind of bomb shelter mentality is the kind of mentality that uh, has shaped modern North Korean society. And I often point to um, a story that uh, Stephen Kinzer, the the New York Times, the former New York Times uh, war reporter, um, wrote um, about the Dulles brothers, and and he's he talks. He points to a situation where um, it was, I think, in 1954, and um, the CIA had just overthrown the uh, elected democratically elected um, president from Guatemala, um, Arbenz, and um, uh, I believe it was. Um, Che Guevara was there as a, as a doctor to kind of witness the overthrow. And so Fidel Castro and Che Guevara met in Mexico for the first time, and they discussed what had happened, how the U.S. and the CIA had, you know, done this coup and, and the overthrow of, uh, of a democratically elected president in Guatemala. And they made a pact at that point that in their commitment to um, liberate Cuba, from uh, US occupation, that uh, that they would um, not create an open society, a democratic society that would be vulnerable to a US invasion. And so I have to say that it takes two to tango. And, and as much as we want to just um, lay the blame on the North Korean regime for its, like, brutal policies, we also have to see the kind of geopolitical geopolit- Geopolitical context in which North Korea is surrounded by, you know, uh, the world's most powerful military right across its border that is regularly practicing at an invasion of that country. And so, um, if, you know, it's just this counterintuitive thing. We allegedly care so much about the North Korean people's human rights, yet our government imposes. the the strongest economic blockade. I mean, UNICEF has just come out with a report saying that up to 60,000 North Korean children could starve as a result of the new rounds of sanctions. And so here we have a president in his State of the Union speech talk about the depraved North Korean regime. Well, we have to look. We have to put the mirror up and say, how much are our policies of military aggression, and of economic uh, blockade of that country impacting the day to day existence of the North Korean people.
0: It's interesting. I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong in recalling that our Benz had supported North Korean charges against the U.S. Uh, of using bioweapons, of using germ warfare, in addition to all of the indiscriminate bombing uh, in that war.
1: Oh, I have no idea about that, David, but that that is amazing. (laughs) Okay,
0: well, I could be, as I say, I could be wrong. That's what I recall. Uh, Christine, are there not some signs of hope in that uh, there's been some support for an Olympic truce? There's been some pause in these flights, in these war rehearsals, or as they call them, uh, war exercises? Uh, And now uh, I understand that uh, the president of South Korea may be headed to a meeting in North Korea. Is that correct, and is that worth something?
1: Oh, David, it's, it's, I mean, it's the bright light in this moment. And, you know, uh, the New York Times article yesterday um, had a, at the, at the very end, of course, had an exchange where um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe had asked uh, Moon Jae-in to resume the military exercises at the end of the Olympics. And we know the the U.S. has already declared that they would resume. Um, And, you know, Moon Jae-in's response to Avi, I think, uh, says a lot. And he said, don't meddle in Korean sovereignty or our internal affairs. And I I think that is a, a sign of him potentially pivoting towards, um, like, postponing the military exercises, um, at least until he goes to Pyongyang to have, um, to have direct talks with the North Koreans. And I did, uh, I reached out to a legal scholar at Columbia to ask him, well, what kind of power does Moon Jae-in have to unilaterally cancel these military exercises? And he wrote me back to say... Um, actually, it might not be politically popular. Obviously, he would. He would. It, it, you know. Obviously, it, it, it's, it's significant to say to the U.S. We are not going to participate in these military exercises. But when you look at the mutual defense treaty between the U.S. and the ROK, um, South Korea in peacetime has operational control. And it is the military exercises on South Korean territory, so he does have the unilateral right legally to um, not to cancel the exercises. So, yeah. um, I think that's I, I I think that's very exciting, and it, I think right now is the moment for the American population to say this Olympic truce, where the U.S. did agree with South Korea to cancel and postpone the military exercises while the Olympics were taking place, is a very hopeful moment, and that we support extending the Olympic truth, um, that we don't want a war with North Korea, and that right now all sides seem to be backing down. North Korea did not has not tested a nuclear weapon or a missile, and uh, right now is the moment for us to support this inter-Korean process and um, to de-escalate that nobody wants war on the Korean Peninsula. Um, we know that, uh, you know, contrary to Senator Lindsey Graham's accusations that a war would just be over there, you know, the Congressional Research Service is that within the first few days of a conflict, up to 300,000 would be, people would be killed. That's including at least 100,000 Americans living in South Korea. It would uh, result in massive Retaliation against the U.S. bases in South Korea, in Japan, in Okinawa, in Guam, um, and we know that the Pentagon has said that you know to try to find um, the the hidden and buried nuclear sites throughout North Korea would require a ground invasion that would include up to six hundred thousand troops. Like, who has those numbers of soldiers that would be willing to go and do that? Um, and so, I think that you know. We can't be uh, fooled to believe that uh, the U.S. could just conduct some kind of bloody nose strike, um, a precision strike. It just it, that, it, that's a fantasy, but it is especially a fantasy um, in going to war against a country like North Korea.
0: Christine, on when Moon Jae-in first came in, it seemed like everyone was excited. Maybe this will be the guy who stands up to the United States. And, and then I guess he sort of was seen as caving in on. Thad uh, missiles and U.S. weaponry in South Korea. Is there is there reason to think now that he's uh, has the nerve to stand up to the U.S. military? Uh, and and if so, what can people do to encourage him in that regard?
1: Well, I think that um, I think you know when he first came in. You know, it's not like he's a green politician. I mean, he was the chief of staff under Nobuyeon, so he understands the kind of enormous political, economic, and military pressure that the U.S. wields, I mean, especially on South Korea. So um, I think he was just kind of getting his footing right. And obviously, the North Korean provocations with the missile tests and stuff obviously, he has to deal with his domestic audience. And so I, you know, I think he was. Trying to get his footing. Um, and then, you know, basically, I think once uh, Donald Trump started to threaten North Korea that he would totally uh, destroy North Korea at the UN, um, that, you know, we saw Moon Jae in starting to come back and say um, there will be no military action on the Korean Peninsula without the full consent and agreement of South Korea. And even when North Korea conducted its last long range missile. He said he had a message both for Pyongyang but also for Washington, D.C., which is nothing will proceed, and um, the threat of military action must also stop. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, what was really, you know, we see all this stuff about, oh, Pyongyang is driving a wedge between the U.S. and South Korea. Well, the real wedge is being driven by the Trump administration's recklessness. I mean, you can't um, threaten to... to to wage a bloody nose strike and not have it have this massive repercussion on millions of South Koreans. I mean, that just makes absolutely no sense. I think, you know, Steve Bannon was absolutely right. You know, the North Koreans have us uh, because, you know, there's just... I mean, it totally brings into the question then of why is the U.S. on the South Korean um, soil? Is it there to... Uh, protect the South Korean people, or is it there to like just advance its own geopolitical interests? And so um, I think by threatening to um, do this military action against North Korea um, would lead to the devastation of South Korea. I think that it just led both Koreas to say, we have to, we have to get, we have to talk, we have to de-escalate, we have to have Korea for Korea. And it's not just the U.S., but we also see China. We also see Russia. We also see very militaristic, provocative, um, you know, actions coming from Japan. And so I think all those reasons um, probably compelled the two Koreas to just say, we need to talk. And the Olympics afforded just the brilliant cover for, um, for them to do so.
0: Very, very well said. Now that we have two minutes left, uh, this incredible action that you all did crossing the DMZ, can you mention briefly what that was and what's come uh, out of that since?
1: Well, we did it in 2015, and uh, 30 women crossed. Uh, We held women's peace symposiums in both Pyongyang and also in Seoul, and we marched with 10,000 women in both North Korea and South Korea, but only the international women. Across the DMZ, but we called for an end to the Korean War with a peace treaty. We called for um, the reunification of families and we called for women's leadership in the peace process because we know when women's peace movements are involved in the peace process, not only does it lead to an actual peace agreement, but it actually leads to more durable ones. So that's what we've been pressing for. Uh, we've continued to do so. We. Did it in Vancouver just two weeks ago when uh, the U.S. and Canada co-convened the meeting of uh, foreign ministers that participated in the Korean War, um, and we'll continue to do so. And our hope is that we we will be able to cross the DMZ and that we will be able to have some kind of action this year of um, international women supporting North and South Korean women in this moment of inter-Korean uh, reconciliation. So. Um, just stay tuned. We'll have more information, I'm sure, in the coming weeks.
0: Can uh, And what can women, or men for that matter, do if they want to support, if they want to help promote your efforts?
1: Oh, well, it would be great. I think we're going to be putting out a call for um, for women to join the, the delegation to South Korea first, because our hope is to meet first in South Korea and Seoul, have a gathering there, and then um, to try to cross the DMC and have A a, a gathering and symposium with women in North Korea Um, but uh, you know that the US US citizens face a travel ban that has been imposed by the Trump administration and so uh, we're going to have to get you know it's a much more complicated crossing this time because of that but uh, we need to challenge it and this could be an opportunity to do so
0: Very good. Christine Ahn is the founder of Women Cross DMZ, the international coordinator of Women Cross DMZ. Christine Ahn, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, David, for all your amazing work. It's just, it's really great to have you in our movement.
0: This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war